brethren. It's delightful to be here. Always delightful to be back in uh, uh, San Diego. And I guess I'm going to be making a couple of trips sort of back-to-back. Uh, we're here, or uh, I'm here to uh, have been this past week for uh, television taping and then uh, in a couple of weeks coming back for the uh, Council of Elders meeting. So anyway, we're it's always a great pleasure to be out here and look forward to visiting uh, with uh, all of you after after services. There are a lot of books on success. A lot of people talk about success. A lot of people have been very successful at telling other people how to be successful. Uh, in fact, they've made a business out of it. Well, I want to give you one key that will guarantee you won't be a success. There's one particular thing that will guarantee that your life will not end in success, and that is a self-directed life. A self-directed life will never end in real success. And yet, a self-directed life is the kind of life that comes naturally. That's the way that is the natural way, and yet it will never truly produce success. Now, I want to look briefly today at the consequences of a self-directed life. But more than that, I want to turn our attention to the alternative to a self-directed life. Because there is an alternative. And that alternative is a surrendered life. A surrendered life. How do we really put that alternative into practice in our lives. How do you put it into practice in your life, and how do I put it into practice in my life? Let's look at an example to begin with. Let's look at at where self-direction leads. Now, self-direction does not lead away from success because people desire to be unsuccessful. They're directing their lives because they think that they can make themselves successful. They are afraid of the alternative. They're afraid of a surrendered life. They're afraid that somehow God will mess them up. So they better take control of the wheel and make sure that they get to where they think they're going to get. There's an example that we find, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Jeremiah. The background uh, for this particular event uh, is found not only in the book of Jeremiah, but you can read accounts in the, the book of Second Chronicles uh, and uh, in the book of Second Kings. Uh, you read the story of a young man who came to the throne in Judah uh, just a couple of years after the death of his grandfather. His grandfather was the most wicked king in the history of Judah, and that goes some. Uh, his name was Manasseh. He had a son that uh, was only on the throne for a very short time, and then his eight-year-old grandson, Josiah, came to the throne. Josiah, uh, of course, during those early years, was not actually uh, in control or in charge. He was, uh, uh, there was a regent that presided over the nation. But uh, as Josiah began to get a little older, as he got on up about 16 years of age, he really began to seek God. And his heart was toward God. And uh, as he got older and took uh, control of the nation and, and took charge of things, uh, Josiah launched a time of great reform. Now, we find that uh, 
this began in, in about the, uh, uh, the time Josiah turned about 20 years of age. And right around that time, perhaps uh, about a year later, in the 13th year of his reign, Jeremiah began to represent God. God began to speak through Jeremiah and use him as his servant. Now, Jeremiah was quite young, too. We don't know exactly how old he was. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us what his excuse was. When God said, Jeremiah, I've got a job for you to do, Jeremiah's response was, I'm too young. I can't do something like that. You know, I'm but a child. So the chances are Je- Jeremiah uh, may very well not have even been out of his teens. He may have uh, been uh, two or three years younger even than the king. king was only about 20, uh, and uh, Jeremiah was probably a little bit younger than that. But you read the story as you go through that uh, uh, the refurbishing of the temple, the rededication of the temple, and finally uh, the great event of King Josiah's reign, and there are many uh, evidences, I won't get off into that, but uh, there are many evidences that that coincides uh, with the uh, Jubilee year and the last Jubilee year that was acknowledged in the land of uh, uh, in the land of Judah, that uh, great Passover that took place uh, in the uh, 18th in the 18th year of King Josiah, a, a time of of rededication, uh, a time of this great Passover that took place. Now, as you go on through the story, we find that other things uh, took place, and uh, we come to the end of Josiah's life a number of years later, though he was still a young man. Uh, at the time he died, he was cut down in battle. Uh, the uh, Egyptians had come up from Egypt, and they were on their way up to the Euphrates River. Uh, they were going to uh, engage the Assyrians, as the account is told. Uh, Josiah uh, jumped into the fray and was killed at the Battle of Megiddo. And uh, that story is given. Now, this set about a period of great instability. Josiah with his whole heart, had turned to God. He really wanted to serve God, and God had prophesied the destruction of the nation. God told Josiah, and told uh, through Jeremiah, told the people, that I will not destroy the nation during the lifetime of Josiah. But when Josiah died, uh, Jeremiah wrote, actually, the book of Lamentations. We're told that he lamented for Josiah, uh, and this was recorded and set down. Uh, the book of Lamentations can be read on several levels. It was, on the one hand, certainly a lament for uh, Josiah, for the righteous king, and a prophecy of the events that were to happen in the aftermath, the things that were going to occur and that did occur over the next uh, period of years uh, in, the, uh, in the history of the nation of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem, and that is described. Uh, in one sense, in a prophetic sense, uh, it is also descriptive of events that happened centuries later with the second destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, and in the most final and full sense, uh, it is prophetic of the Great Tribulation and the events there because the previous destructions of Jerusalem were merely a type uh, of the events that are going to happen in the end time. Now, when Josiah was killed in battle, This, of course, threw the nation into consternation. uh, Josiah had several sons, and his oldest son did not immediately succeed to the throne. 
there were uh, people who immediately took his uh, one of his sons, evidently probably his second son, uh, called in the Bible Jehoahaz or Shalom. Uh, he had evidently two names, and he succeeded his father to the throne, but he only stayed there three months because the Egyptians who had been responsible for Josiah's death returned back through Jerusalem, and they were clearly unhappy with the young man that was on the throne. He was evidently part of, a, of an anti-Egyptian party. As you read the story, particularly in Jeremiah, uh, there were factions in the government there in Judah. And all of these factions had as their objective to preserve the independence of the nation, to preserve uh, their status. They were out to protect themselves. And though their strategies differed, they all had one thing in common in the strategies they chose. Those strategies were designed to protect the self. That's what they were out to do. And they thought they had a plan. Now, those that put Shalom uh, on the throne, uh, they were evidently uh, planning to ally with the enemies of Egypt. But it appeared that Egypt was now dominant. Egypt came back through. Uh, this would have been about 608 B.C., and they uh, uh, grabbed Shalom, hauled him off to Egypt, and put his older brother, a man by the name of Jehoiakim, they put him on the throne. And he was, uh, uh, you know, a young man uh, himself, but they put him on the throne. He was a little bit older. He was about uh, 20, uh, I think about 25 when he uh, took the throne, but, uh, or about, yeah, about 25 uh, he took the throne, and he was on the throne for about 11 years. But during those years, he was a man who did not in any way really seek God. Uh, in fact, uh, though he was, uh, uh, he was going to be loyal to the Egyptians, he was dependent, and, and the faction he represented was the pro-Egyptian wing of things. Now, there was a great power battle going on in the world in the Near East at that time, and that was... Egypt, the dominant power to the south, and Babylon, the rising power to the north and to the east. Because Babylon had, within a short time, absorbed much of the Assyrian Empire. They had defeated the Assyrians, and Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne about three years after Josiah's death, about 605 or so, and he launched an invasion. And he was going to come down and fight the Egyptians. His desire was to take over the whole Near East. Well... Uh, this young king, Josiah's eldest son, Jehoiakim, Jeremiah the prophet delivered God's messages. Did Jehoiakim try to emulate his father's example? Did he uh, seek to really serve God? Did he seek to, to do the things with which God would be pleased? Absolutely not. He totally disregarded that, but he felt safe and secure based on his army based on the walls of Jerusalem, based on the supposed alliance uh, that he had with the Egyptians. Well, things didn't work out for him quite as well as he thought they would. Uh, Jeremiah warned him. Jeremiah told him he wouldn't listen. Nebuchadnezzar came in uh, after Jehoiakim had been on the throne about four years, uh, in about 604, and made... Judah, a tributary state to the Assyrian Empire. There were various of the prominent young men that were taken off to Babylon at that time, Daniel being one of them, uh, perhaps a young teenager at that time, uh, and others, young men from leading families. 
Well, Jehoiakim continued his intriguing and his various strategies as to how he was going to secure his independence from Babylon. And finally, the Babylonians came back and were going to lay siege. Jehoiakim, as we will see, died a very ignominious death. Uh, and his young son, who was about 18 at the time, Jehoiakim, uh, then became king. He lasted all of three months. In fact, I think Second Chronicles says he lasted three months and ten days. Uh, so uh, uh, the Babylonians came in. You see, he was of the same attitude as his father. He had his strategy. He had his plans. Babylonians came in, arrested him, hauled him off in chains to Babylon, and they put his uncle, the last of Josiah's sons, on the throne, Zedekiah, who proved to be the last king of Judah. Now, all through this time, Jeremiah the prophet is bringing God's message. He's bringing what God has to say. Notice here in Jeremiah chapter 17, with this as a little bit of background, let's notice in Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, here's part of Jeremiah's message. He said, Thus says the Eternal, Cursed be the man that trusts in man, and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs. From the eternal. Now, Jeremiah is delivering this message to young kings, the sons and the grandson of his dear friend, King Josiah. Jeremiah is delivering God's message. And he said, you are headed for trouble. Now, it didn't just apply to them, it applies to you and to me. Cursed be the man that trusts in man. It comes naturally to us, brethren, to put our trust and our confidence in what we can see. Somehow what we can see and touch and taste and feel, what we can discern with the physical senses, that seems most real. And yet it's really not. The great invisible God, the great God who fills heaven and earth, there is reality. You see, they were trusting in man. They were trusting in secret alliances with Egypt. And as you go through the story, clearly Jehoiakim and Zedekiah both at various times thought they were going to get free of Babylonian overlordship because they had cut a deal with the Egyptians. They could count on the Egyptians. Boy, Pharaoh's going to come up here. He'll get me out of this problem. You go on through the book of Jeremiah and you find people kept thinking that they could rely on Egypt as a counterbalance to Babylon and they were going to play their power politics. Didn't work. Cursed be the man that trusts in man, makes flesh his arm, and his heart departs from God. Notice back in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Jeremiah made a very plain statement and one that is important for us to understand. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walks to direct his steps. When you and I rely on self-directed strategies, when we plan a self-directed life, though success is undoubtedly our goal. The way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walks to direct his steps. 
know, the book of Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Uh, rather, we're told in all our ways to acknowledge God. Let Him direct our paths. Well, let's go on. Let's look a little further. Let's go back to Jeremiah 22, and let's look at uh, Jeremiah's message. Here were young men, young men that Jeremiah had seen grow up. Shalom, Jehoiakim, his son Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, three of Josiah's sons and one of his grandsons. Jeremiah had seen each one of those boys grow up. He had watched uh, them develop and mature. Uh, the time when Josiah died and the events subsequent, he lived through all of that time. And Jeremiah was heartsick at what he saw happening to the nation. Now, Jeremiah delivered a message here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. God told him in verse 1, go down and deliver a message uh, to the house of the king of Judah. This was the message that uh, uh, in verse 11, thus says the Lord touching Shalom. See, he was the first of Josiah's sons to succeed to the throne. Thus says the Lord touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah his father that went forth out of this place. He shall not return here anymore. He will die in the place where they've led him captive, and he'll see this land no more. See, there was a faction that was sure that Shalom was going to come back. He was going to somehow get back, and they were the pro-Shalom faction. Jeremiah said, look, he's going to die where he is. You're never going to see him again. He's never going to set foot in this place again. Don't have a hope that is based on something that's false and empty. Then he went on, verse 18, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This was Shalom's older brother, uh, a couple of years older than Shalom, but succeeded to the throne second. Here was God's message to Jehoiakim. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He will be buried with the burial of an ass. He's going to be buried like a dead donkey, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Evidently died during the Babylonian siege and was actually uh, thrown over. Jeremiah said, Jehoiakim, you think you're well ensconced? They're going to dispose of you like a dead donkey. You'll have no honor, no glory in your death. Now you go through the story and you find Jehoiakim was a wicked, arrogant young man. In fact, Jeremiah had uh, uh, written God's prophecies. They had been delivered uh, there in the temple and some of those who heard it were impressed and even some of the leaders and they wanted it brought before King Jehoiakim for him to read. And he was such a young smart aleck, he sat there with his pocket knife and uh, uh, cut, cut it. He'd let him read it and then he'd take it and, and sort of cut it up in little pieces and throw it in the fire and burn it up until he burned up the whole prophecy Jeremiah had written, as though that were somehow going to negate it. Well, God told Jeremiah, he says, tell your scribe Baruch uh, to get his... Uh, pen and papyrus out because uh, we're going to, uh, I'm going to, we're, you're going to write the whole thing again and we're going to add a little bit 
we're going to add a little bit. Uh, Jehoiakim may want to find out what's going to happen to him. They're going to dispose of him like an old dead donkey. Well, if you come on down through the story, his young son, who was 18, Jeconiah, or Coniah, as he's sometimes called, as he is right here, uh, sort of a, uh, like a, a nickname or a, or a diminutive uh, uh, familiar term. Verse 24, As I live, says the Lord, though uh, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, I would pluck him fence. Uh, I will give you into the hand of those that seek your life, into the hand of them whose face you fear, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. See, Jeconiah took over when his father died. He lasted three months. Jeremiah's message was, you're going into captivity too. In this case, he was. He was actually taken and changed to Babylon. Well, if we uh, uh, come on down... uh, hide a little, uh, come on down a little further. Notice here, you see, people were out, they had their strategies, they had their plans, uh, they had all of the uh, the backroom maneuverings to somehow protect themselves to ensure success. In this case, it involved alliances and secret treaties. Uh, it involved uh, uh, various plans to get the Egyptians to send their army up to cause the, the Babylonians to withdraw. All of these plans that people had. And yet, all this time, they weren't really putting God first. They weren't doing what God said. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 23, God said through the pen of Jeremiah, Am I a God at hand, says the Lord, or and not a God afar off? Am I close, or am I way off somewhere? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? God says, where are you going to hide from me? You've got your strategy, you've got your plan, you've got your deal that you're working on. And you're sure that you can take care of it. Am I way off somewhere? God says, I fill heaven and earth. There's nowhere you can go that you can get away from me. There's nowhere you can go that somehow I'm not going to see or I'm not going to notice. Brethren, we have to understand that we live our lives before the great God. And every aspect of our lives are open in His sight. Well, if you come on back through the story uh, here in Jeremiah chapter 38, God's Word came to Jeremiah and... uh, We read back here of uh, King Zedekiah. Now, he was the last king of Judah. He was the uh, evidently the youngest son of Josiah. He was only about ten years old when his father died, uh, but uh, years had gone by, and now he uh, had ascended to the throne. Uh, He was uh, about 21 when he came to the throne. And uh, uh, right in the aftermath of when uh, uh, the Babylonians had arrested his nephew, Jeconiah hauled him off. This is about 597 B.C. And Zedekiah now comes to the throne. And he is the final king. He's the ruler during the last 11 years. And uh, his rule actually culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah had a number of dealings with Zedekiah. Zedekiah was nervous. He was trying to make deals with the Egyptians. Uh, He was faced with the Babylonians coming. 
Jeremiah had given him advice. He hadn't taken it. Notice in Jeremiah 38, 14, Zedekiah the king sent and took Jeremiah the prophet, brought him in sort of the back way, didn't want anybody to see it. And uh, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah, now I want, to tell, I want you to give me some advice. I want you to tell me what's going to happen. What does God say? Jeremiah told Zedekiah, verse 17, Thus says the Eternal, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you shall live and your house. Jeremiah told Zedekiah, he said, If you will surrender, if you will go out to the princes of Babylon, then the city will be spared and the temple will be spared. Zedekiah, he went on to tell him, verse 18, he says, If you don't, if you don't listen to me, if you don't go forth to the, to the Babylonians right now, the city is going to be given into the hands of the Chaldeans, they'll burn it with fire, and you shall not escape out of their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I can't do that. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You know, there are Jews that have already gone with the Chaldeans and they may deliver me into their hand and they'll mock me. They'll make fun of me. They'll call me names, say bad things about me. I can't go out there. I'm afraid to do that. So Zedekiah told Jeremiah, he said, Now look, don't let anybody know I called you. And he sent him back. Well, as you go on down through the story you find that when Nebuchadnezzar's army breached the walls of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, again, he was going to deliver himself. He and some of his friends, they sneaked out the back way. They went out through the king's garden, went out through a back way uh, into a field, and they took off. They were heading uh, away. Well, it didn't take very long before they got caught. They were all eventually brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and a horrible event happened. You see, Zedekiah's young sons. Realize Zedekiah himself is still a young man. He came to the throne at 21, reigned for 11 years, so he's 32 years of age. His sons can't be all that old, uh, teenagers at most. His sons were killed right in front of him. He had to watch them being executed. That That was the last thing he ever saw because after his sons were executed, then the Babylonians put his eyes out. He was blinded. Then he was put in chains and he was hauled off to Babylon as a prisoner. A horrible thing. That didn't happen to Zedekiah because he wanted his life to end that way. It happened to Zedekiah because he was afraid to follow God's instructions He was afraid to live a surrendered life. He had to live a self-directed life. As you go through these final kings of Judah, you find they all had their plans. They had the things they trusted in, the things that they were sure were going to work. Because when people follow self-directed strategies, they are following things that they believe are going to work and make them successful. Because you see, sometimes what God tells us seems to go against the grain. What God tells us, people look at it and say, well, I don't see how that's going to work. That doesn't seem very practical to me. If I do that, somebody will take advantage of me. 
If I do that, somebody may make fun of me. If I do that, well, who knows? You see, fear is one of the things that can certainly stand in the way of surrender. As we go through here, what we find is, of course, Zedekiah was was afraid. He wanted to protect himself against suffering, against humiliation. That was why he chose to direct his own life with his own strategy. He didn't want to be humiliated. He didn't want to suffer. What was the result? Well, he suffered, suffered greatly. He was humiliated because he chose to direct his own life rather than to let God direct it, rather than to turn his life and his will over to God. You and I can go through the Scriptures. We can go through from Genesis to Revelation, and you see this theme that runs through. Now, nobody sets out setting their goals and says, well, you know, what I really want is a mess. You don't have to plan for that and, and sort of... You ever see anybody, uh, you know, they've, they've got a book. People come to seminars. They want to find out how to make a mess out of their life. Uh, and so uh, uh, people don't go seeking that with that is their conscious goal. But that's where so many wind up. And you look through at these men, young men. Men in their, in some cases, uh, in their tw- uh, teens, 20s, 30s. As you look at the, uh, you know, the final kings, final four kings of, uh, uh, of Judah were in their teens, their 20s, and their 30s. Young men. And their lives wound up a mess because they chose to direct their own footsteps. That's why Jeremiah said, you know, he warned them. You read the book of Jeremiah and he said, look, cursed is the man that trusts in man. No, it's not in man that walks to direct his steps. Well, there is an alternative approach. There's a different way of going about things. And that, of course, is is most clearly evidenced by one specific example. Again, there are examples of those who surrendered, but the most perfectly surrendered, the only one who was perfectly surrendered, the one who's our pattern and example is Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter writes, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, the mind of Christ. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now what does he mean by that? Well, if you, if you notice here, it says, arm yourselves with the same mind. What was the mindset of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, it talks about suffering, and he that suffered, suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. The point is, the mind of Christ was that he would rather suffer than sin. If the choice was between suffering, between humiliation, between being mistreated or taken advantage of, if the choice was between suffering and sinning, he'd rather suffer. He was prepared to suffer rather than to sin. And he took that all the way 
to the cross, didn't he? You see, Peter introduces this. Peter talks a lot about hope and he talks about the glory that will be revealed in us. In fact, in verse, 20, in verse 13 of 1 Peter 4, he says, Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. See, if you have the mind of Christ, if you would rather suffer than sin, because... You know, anybody can be good when it's to their advantage, uh, when it works well, and when it's convenient, and when it works to your immediate advantage. That, that makes sense. But Jesus Christ looked beyond right here, right now. And if we're willing to share in His sufferings, then we can be guaranteed that when His glory is revealed, we will be glad with exceeding joy because we will share in that glory. You see, the greatest obstacle, I think, that uh, lies in the way of surrender is that we don't like suffering. I don't like to suffer. If I've got a choice, you know, would you rather be comfortable or, or would you rather be in pain? Well, I'd rather be comfortable. It's not a matter of suffering in the sense of, of self-inflicted suffering, the idea that certain uh, ascetics have had down through the centuries. It's not a matter of doing things to yourself to somehow punish the flesh. Rather, it's a matter that you are prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. And when you read the Bible, you find that if you're going to serve God and if you're going to walk in the paths of righteousness, it's very likely you may suffer for it. The first man that we have record of, who was a man of faith, died. A young man, evidently not even married, no children. There's no uh, evidence or record of his, uh, uh, his descendants. We don't know exactly how old Abel was when Cain killed him. But we know that Abel is the first man mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a man who responded to God with faith. Abel suffered for obeying God. He was killed. He was martyred. You go through the story in Hebrews 11 of men and women and you find inevitably the men and women of faith were individuals who trusted God and who were prepared to suffer if that was what was necessary. They were prepared to suffer rather than to direct their own ways, trying to protect themselves. You see, when Suffering is the thing you want to avoid at all costs, then you wind up directing your own life for self-protective strategies. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be taken advantage of. Zedekiah said, no, I'm afraid I can't do that. Well, if I go out there, you know, people may make fun of me. A very, very poor choice on his part. And yet, you know, put yourself in his place. How many of us have made poor choices because we were afraid of the physical circumstances. We were afraid that it would hurt, that it would be painful, that it would be embarrassing, that it would be humiliating. We were afraid. And so we said, well, I better protect myself. Peter said, 
We've got to arm ourselves with the same mind, the mind of Christ. That is the key to a surrendered life, the, you, because you can't live a surrendered life unless you have the mind of Christ. And if you're going to live a surrendered life, then you've got to be willing to endure persecution. You've got to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. You see, it goes on in verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time, speaking of those who armed themselves with the mind of Christ, no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. You know, in times past, our life may suffice us. We've been like the nations around us, been like everybody else, and walked in uh, all of the things that Paul describes here, the lawless behavior, lust, uh, excess of wine, all sorts of uh, abominable idolatries, all sorts of things that just simply represent the way the world is. And, of course, if you've been a part of this world living that way, and you make changes, verse 4, they think it's strange. What's wrong with you? Come on, let's party. What's wrong with you? That you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now, the mind of Christ was a surrendered heart and mind. We are told in uh, John chapter 5, John chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus said, I can of my own self do nothing. I judge and my judgment is uh, just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. I seek not my own will. On down a little further in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him that sent me. Jesus Christ came not to protect Himself, but to do the will of the Father. The first key to living a surrendered life is you've got to be willing to suffer for it. If you're not willing to suffer, then you're not going to live a surrendered life. If you're not prepared to suffer rather than to sin, then you won't live a surrendered life. Jesus Christ was prepared to suffer all the way to the stake. He was prepared to pay the ultimate price for you and for me. He took our sins on Him. Now, you go through the story of Scripture and you find uh, that there are many examples. You look in the New Testament and you look at some of the persecutions. You know, so we all have our problems and our difficulties and some people I know have more than others. Would you like to meet up with the Apostle Paul and the resurrection and sort of compare notes? Sort of tell him, you know... I had it pretty rough, too. I read in the book of Acts, read some of the stuff you went through, but, uh, you know, I, I really had it pretty rough. I had, you know, I had a fellow that I used to work with. He wouldn't even talk to me anymore. Just really hurt my feelings. I, I really suffered. I was really persecuted. You go through and you read what some of these men went through who ultimately paid with their lives. I'll tell you, it sort of puts into perspective what you and I face. 
Because I don't know of any of us in this room, I don't know very many of God's people that have ever even approached facing the magnitude of the suffering that some of God's servants down through the ages have gone through, some of whom we read of in Scripture, others you can read in secular history. Now, there are going to come times of tremendous physical persecution uh, in the future. The Bible talks about that. But you see, it gets down to a matter of priorities. It's not a matter of just going along and doing what God says when it's convenient or when it's easy. The real test is when it's hard. When it seemingly sets you up to be hurt or taken advantage of. You go through the book of Acts and you read uh, of the Apostle Paul and how uh, you know he'd be taken and beaten up in one city and he was uh, stoned, uh, left for dead. What did he do? Got up. Went on to the next city, and he preached again. You see, Paul had a mission, and he had the big picture in mind. And he was prepared to suffer rather than to turn away. You know, one of the things that must have gone through Paul's mind, you know, there was a time when Paul was the one who was dishing out the suffering. There was a time when Paul was arresting people, hauling them off to jail, uh, when he was responsible for hurting others and doing things, trying to make them renounce Christianity. Undoubtedly, throughout his life, Paul carried those memories. And he realized that, you know, maybe he was on the receiving end, he was going through some some difficult times. But he kept a perspective. Because he kept his eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, let's, uh, let's go on. We look, first key to living a surrendered life is you've got to be willing to suffer. Let's go on down in Peter and let's notice a second point that Peter brings out that is a vital part of a surrendered life. He says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Be sober. Watch unto prayer. Really be focused on what God says. And above all things, verse 8, have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Don't begrudge one another. Have fervent love among yourselves. A surrendered life is a life that is described, that is characterized by fervent love. You know, didn't Jesus tell His disciples on the final night, the night of His final Passover, His final night on earth as a human being, didn't He tell them that by this shall all men know that you are My disciples if you have love one toward another? If you really love one another. Peter Peter was there. Peter heard those words. And so here's Peter writing decades later. And he says, look, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Peter knew that was necessary. Now, it's easy to be loving and kind to people who are being nice to you. You ever notice somebody comes up and they say something nice, they got a smile on their face and they say something nice or complimentary to you, 
makes you feel good. You, you want to sort of respond in kind. You'd like to say something nice back to them. What about the people that hurt your feelings? What about the people that let you down? Or what about the people that are different than you are? You know, it's interesting because Christ didn't just love. We're told, be armed with the mind of Christ. Uh, uh, arm ourselves with the same mind. Christ didn't just love those who loved him. In fact, very interesting, if you read in John chapter 13, verse 1, talks about the Passover was coming, and Christ knew that he was going to depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world. Notice the end of verse 1, John 13, and he loved them unto the end. He loved them all the way to the end. Now, if you go on through the story, you find here, the devil had now entered into Judas. Jesus, at this point, got up from the table. This is before the institution of the, the, uh, uh, the symbols of the bread and the wine. They had bread and wine on the table, but Jesus had not yet set those apart uh, as he did at the end of the meal uh, as a special symbol for the Christian Passover. But here... Right at the beginning of the meal, the, the King James translation and some of the translations are uh, misleading. They imply that supper was ending, actually. Uh, if you check it up, supper was actually taking place. Uh, and if you get the whole context and put all the Gospels together, that uh, was uh, early on. Jesus got up and he took his outer coat off and picked up a towel and began to wash their feet. That was after... The devil had entered into Judas. But think of this in terms of what we're told in verse 1. He loved them unto the end. Now you come on down through the story, and you find that after the Passover was over, they left the city and walked out uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, we're told, began to be very heavy. In other words, really, just to sort of feel overwhelmed, discouraged, depressed, just, just this huge weight. He took Peter, James, and John, who were the ones to whom he was the closest, sort of the inner group. He took them over closer to where he was, said, fellas, here, come over here. And he said, now, I'm going over there to pray. He said, please watch and pray with me. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I really feel just just discouraged and depressed. My soul is heavy. There's no indication that Jesus asked them to ever do very many things for him. Think about it. Just go through the Gospels. How many places do you find where Jesus was asking them to do something for him? But this time he asked them to do something for him. He said, fellas, please pray with me. He went over and he prayed. He prayed for an hour, came back. Now, he was praying intently. We heard about that in the sermonette. He was praying intently, came back. They were asleep. They were asleep. He woke them up and he said, can't you watch with me one hour? Can you put yourself in the, in the, in the frame of mind? You are facing the most difficult trial of your life. You're going through the most difficult thing. You're facing it right in front of you. The most difficult thing you have ever contemplated in your life. 
And you go to those that are absolutely the closest people to you. And you say, would you please pray with me? I'm just, I really feel overwhelmed. I'm going to go pray. You please pray. Come back a little later and they're snoring. They're asleep. Wake them up and say, can't you please pray with me for an hour? Oh, yeah, 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 we're going to do that. Go over and you pray. Come back. They're they're asleep. It happened. You know, Christ went three different times. The final time, He came back. So He woke them up. He said, well, I guess you guys might as well sleep on because it's too late now. Did He get mad? Did He say, if you guys can't show me any more consideration than that, I'm through with you. No, John 13, 1 says, He loved them unto the end. He loved them when they were hard to love. Aren't we glad that He loved us when we were hard to love? When we still are hard to love sometimes? You know, you go through, you look at the example, look at the different personalities. You know, sometimes it's easy to love certain personalities. They're just... Uh, you know, warm and loving and, and, and they're just pleasant to be with and we just love them because they're sort of like us. Other personalities we find a little more difficult. It's interesting, in Luke's account, Luke, I think it's in Luke 10, tells about uh, uh, Jesus going to the home of uh, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You remember the story. Uh, here's Jesus and his disciples and maybe some others over there and Martha is bustling around trying to get dinner ready. Now, you can understand that. Here is Jesus. Here are the disciples. You've got a house full. And they're waiting on the meal. And you're bustling around. Martha's bustling around. And where is Mary? She's off in the living room with the men sitting there listening to Jesus instead of being out here in the kitchen helping Martha get dinner on the table. Martha probably thought she was really being patient. Finally, she came out, interrupted everything that was going on, and said, Master, would you please tell my sister to get up and get in this kitchen and help me to put dinner on the table? I can't believe it. She's sitting out here and just, you know, and I'm doing all the work all by myself. Would you please tell her to get out here and help me? We're told, verse 40, you see, Martha was cumbered about with much, with much serving. And she said, don't you care? See, not only is Mary at fault because she hadn't come, but you've let her sit here. You knew I was out here in the kitchen all by myself. Don't you care that she's just sort of left me to do all the work? Jesus said, Martha, Martha. You're careful and troubled about many things. You really worry about things, don't you, Martha? You really like everything to be lined up and to just be perfect. You, you want it to be just right. And you're sure worried, aren't you? You're, you're uh, just, you know, all stressed out. You know, there's one thing that's really important. We're going to have a nice meal in a little while, and we're going to enjoy it, he told her. But you know what, Martha? Within a matter of a few hours, we're going to be hungry again. In the long run, there's only one thing that really matters. And Mary has chosen that thing. 
She's hearing the words of life. That's what's going to last on into eternity. This wonderful meal you're preparing, a few hours from now, we're going to be looking for something else to eat. We're going to be hungry again. But the point that I would like to make, you know, it's easy for us, depending on our personalities, we either really identify with Mary or we really identify with Martha. Uh, And we've got Marys and Marthas and in-betweens. And you know, the trouble is, sometimes the Marys find it pretty hard to understand the Marthas, and the Marthas know that the Marys are just, well, they're almost useless. They're not out here helping me do what I'm scurrying around doing. There's an interesting statement made in John 11, verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved all three of them. He loved them all. He loved Martha. She was, you know, busy scurrying around. She was troubled with many things. She was the organizer. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. He loved them all, even though they were all different. Look at his disciples. You know, here was... They were very different men. Jesus called men of different backgrounds and different personalities. He called people who were called... Some some of his disciples came out of what you would call a very uh, religious background. We know that because John 1 tells us uh, that a couple of the disciples of Jesus had previously been disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was noted as a very strict, ascetic individual. You remember? We're told in John uh, chapter 1, let's see, John chapter 1, verse 35, the next day after, this is after Christ's baptism, John stood and two of his disciples. We don't know how long they'd been there. John's ministry had probably started about six months previously. uh, And uh, so they had been with him for a period of months. They were some of his disciples. You'd have to say, well, these were uh, pretty religious fellows. They were really uh, seeking to learn the truth more fully. Uh, They had sort of a strict uh, religious approach. They were John's disciples. And uh, he was standing there with these two. And he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Do you know who that is, fellas? That's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. See, John pointed him out. So they went and followed Jesus. Uh, We're told as you come on down through the story that one of these disciples uh, was uh, Andrew, verse 40. One of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Peter's Peter's brother. I don't know if he was older or not, but uh, it may have been. Uh, And doesn't mention the name of the other. I think probably it was John. I think that's most likely John normally doesn't mention his name going through. Now, here were people, here were a couple of the disciples. They, they were, had come out of that sort of background. On the other hand, here's old Matthew. Talk about a worldly fella. Matthew's a publican. He's a tax collector. He's a man who's a businessman. He knows sort of how to wheel and deal and, and deal with the Romans. He's uh, uh, educated from the standpoint of, of fitting in with uh, uh, the Roman civil administration. He came out of a very different background. Uh, he was, uh, would have come out of a background that many of the strict Jews of the day 
would have despised. They looked at him and said, well, that worldly fellow, why in the world would he call somebody like that? You know, here's Peter, impetuous Peter, always ready to go charging off. You know, you need an opinion, just bring a subject up. He had one. Jesus loved Peter. James and John, Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. You remember, uh, they were coming on their way through the uh, province of Samaria, and uh, they had Jesus had sent some disciples into a little village to buy some food. Uh, they looked and they said, you guys headed to Jerusalem? Oh, yeah. We don't sell food to your kind. We're not going to sell food to you Jews. You're going to Jerusalem. When they came back and told Jesus, James and John got so upset, said, Lord, you want us to just call fire down from heaven? Let's just burn it up. Jesus shook his head and he said, fellas, you don't know what spirit you're of. He nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. Oh, they were always up to something. You know, one time they heard of, uh, they saw some men casting out demons in Jesus' name. They came and told Jesus about it and said, don't worry about it. We told them to stop. We told them to quit. Who, who told you to get involved in it? Who told you to go tell them to quit? Sons of Thunder. John was hot-tempered, ambitious. You know, a couple of occasions you read where they sort of maneuvered around. Lord, uh, what about, you know, we know you're going to inherit this kingdom. My brother and I, we'd sort of like to be your right-hand men. Sit on your right hand and your left. In one case, they got their mother, who was probably Jesus' aunt, uh, Mary's sister, got their mother to come to him and say, you know, I really want to ask a favor from my boys. The other disciples really got upset. John, on the one hand, was, you know, had a very deep and thoughtful side, and yet, on the other hand, he was hot-tempered. He was ambitious, ready to sort of maneuver around. And what about old pessimistic, doubting Thomas? Remember when Jesus got ready to go back to Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem area, where when he heard about Lazarus? And he had almost been killed. You know, they'd tried to stone him the last time he was there, just a few months earlier in December. And now here they are, maybe a couple of months later, six weeks later. And he says, no, I'm going back. Old Thomas looked around at the others and he said, well, we might as well go with him and die too. Real pessimistic sort of guy, you know, just always expecting the worst. It could go down the line. And, and uh, you know, what about, what about Nathaniel? Now, he was a fella, he, Nathaniel never won any awards for tact. Christ made the statement of Nathaniel that uh, he is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. You don't have to wonder what Nathaniel's thinking because he's just going to tell you. Uh, the story is given there in, in John chapter 1 uh, when Philip, who was from the same town that Andrew and John and James had come from, uh, Philip had come to Jesus, and so he went and he found Nathanael. He said, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael looked at him and said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> you know, why are you hauling me off to see somebody from Nazareth? When Jesus met him, he looked at him and he said, well, I see you're an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Never have to wonder what your opinion is, Nathanael. Not a subtle bone in your body. 
quite a collection of personalities. Jesus loved them. He loved them all the way to the end. He still does. Can you and I have that sort of an approach or that sort of an attitude? Peter said, you know, as he's writing and he's telling his listeners to be armed with the same mind, the mind of Christ. Be willing to suffer for righteousness. Above all things, he said, have fervent love among yourselves. Oh, it's so easy to have the problems and the difficulties come in because somebody sort of gets on our nerves. Well, you go through Scripture and you look at a pretty wide variety of personalities. God hasn't chosen to just work through one kind of person with one set of strengths. You know, every personality has its strengths and it has its compensating weaknesses. We're different. But God has set every member in the body where it pleases Him. Let's go on. Let's look at, at one final uh, point here in uh, 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we uh, uh, come on down a little further from this point on love, and in verse 10, we're told, As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Good stewards of the many gifts. This word grace, the Greek word charis, which uh, means literally what's freely given or bestowed. Sometimes we have uh, defined it as uh, unmerited pardon, and it is. But it is also much more. It means anything that is freely given, freely bestowed. We are told to be good stewards of the many gifts of God. God has freely given and bestowed, and we're to be good stewards, because whatever you and I have, we are given it by God, and we're to be stewards of that, good stewards. He gives some examples. If any man speak, it needs to be as God's words. If any man serve, then let him do it according to the ability that God has given, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Different gifts. Different people have different gifts. And all of those gifts are important. Some people can serve in one way. Some can serve in another. You know, it's interesting. You go through the story in the New Testament. You go through the book of Acts. You don't read any books that Barnabas wrote in the New Testament. And yet, two of the men who played an important part in writing the New Testament, on a human level, perhaps owed their place to Barnabas. You go through the account. You know, we use the name Barnabas. If I mentioned Joseph the Levite, most of you wouldn't know who I'm talking about because that name is only mentioned once. That was the real name. Barnabas was a nickname. The disciples named him Barnabas. Barnabas literally means son of encouragement or son of consolation. It was a nickname. That wasn't his real name, but you see, he was such an encouraging, upbeat fellow that he went through life all through the book of Acts, everywhere you find him mentioned, elsewhere in Scripture. He's always referred to by his nickname. That encouraging fellow. 
You remember the story when Saul was converted, when he was struck down on the road to Damascus, and finally he went to Jerusalem? You remember the story there in the book of Acts? Most of the disciples didn't want to have anything to do with him. They said, I don't trust this guy. Yeah, I heard, you know, he's supposed to have been converted, baptized up in Damascus, they said. I don't think he's for real. They didn't want anything to do with him. It was Barnabas that brought him to the apostles and said, Here, I want you to, I want you to meet somebody. He's the one that brought him. The apostles talked to him, but they told him, You know, don't call us, we'll call you. Paul went back home. He was in, in his home city of Tarsus, evidently back in the tent-making business for several years. Barnabas was assigned by the apostles to go to Antioch and take the church there and pastor that. When Barnabas got to Antioch, then shortly afterward, he left, went up to Tarsus, got Saul and brought him back down to Antioch, brought him into the ministry, worked with him. They went on the first evangelistic journey together. Now, it's interesting. Paul was a different personality. You know, Paul was one of the great heroes of the Bible. Uh, God used him in a powerful way. But I suspect that Paul would probably have not been a real easy man to work for. He drove himself to the hilt. And as you read the book of Acts, you read that uh, Barnabas' nephew, young John Mark, whom they had taken along as an assistant, didn't take John Mark too many months uh, to have had about all of that he could take. And so he said, uh, fellas, I'm, I'm going to catch the next boat back to Jerusalem. And Paul was disgusted. Later on, when they got ready to start the second journey, they were getting ready to leave. Barnabas said, look, uh, Paul, I've been talking to, to my nephew, to, to young John Mark. I think, you know, John Mark's grown up a lot since uh, we took him on that earlier trip. I think he's learned some lessons. And I think it would really encourage him if we invited him to come with us again. Paul said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're not going to bring that guy. I don't want him. He's a quitter. Barnabas said, no, no, he needs to come. He, you know, he's, he feels badly about it. He needs some encouragement. Uh, we're we're going to bring him. Paul said, no. So they wound up and took separate journeys. Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas and they went, you know, and, and they just divided up the trip. But you know, it's interesting. The last book Paul ever wrote at the end of his life, he acknowledged you know Barnabas was right. What he said in Second Timothy, telling Timothy, he said, Now, Timothy, I want you to, I, I'm, you know, please hurry and come. Try to get here before winter. And bring Mark with you. He's really profitable. I need him. He, I, I know I can count on Mark. Bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me for a service. I've got something very important, and I know I can count on Mark. Paul wrote more books of the New Testament than any other man. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. You know, Barnabas may not have been that great a writer. I don't know what kind of preacher he was. More, maybe he was more of a speaker than Paul. But you know, the greatest gift that Barnabas had, maybe not the deep intellect of Paul being able to explain in Galatians or Romans some of these uh, deep uh, concepts. But Barnabas had the gift of encouragement. Now, different people have different gifts. 
But don't diminish or downplay whatever gift you have or others have. Peter said, be good stewards of the many gifts of God. Realize that the things we have as gifts from God, we're to be stewards of those. Good stewards, we're to handle them well. To use them in a way that will serve and benefit and help. Everyone has gifts. Different gifts. And every gift is important. Every member of the body is important. Paul explained that. Brethren, a self-directed life will never lead us to real success. A self-directed life can only lead in failure. It's not in man that walks to direct his steps. When our goal is to protect the self, then we're headed for trouble. There are many examples to illustrate that. But the alternative to a self-directed life is a surrendered life. That means that we have the mind of Christ because Christ set the perfect example of surrender and submission to the Father's will. He was prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. He was prepared to suffer in order to please the Father and to do what God said. What the Father thought meant more than what people thought. Meant more than what was going on around. A surrendered life. We have to be prepared to suffer if we're going to live a surrendered life. We can't be afraid of what people are going to say or do. We have to be willing to suffer. And we also... A surrendered life is going to evidence itself in a fervent love for one another. A fervent love. Not just a medium love or sort of like in a few folks, but fervent love for one another. Wide variety of people, wide variety of personalities. But when Jesus looked at his disciples, he loved them all. And he loved them to the end. You can't just love people when they're being nice to you. You've got to love them for the bad times too. Fervent love among ourselves. And recognizing the responsibility to be good stewards of God's gifts. Different gifts. The different ones of us may have. But whatever our gift, our stewardship of that gift is very important. Peter looked on beyond his day. See, Peter had learned a lot of lessons from the time he was that, you know, impetuous, impulsive young man that Jesus had loved. Because you see, when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw what Peter could become. He saw what, you know, the, the outstanding qualities of leadership. He saw what Peter could become. Peter had his problems. Jesus' fervent love doesn't mean that you uh, are blind and you don't recognize that uh, somebody's not perfect. But Jesus loved him. Peter learned these lessons, and now as he was in his mature years, 
he said, look, here in 1 Peter 5, 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. He said, I've learned something about life over the years. I saw Jesus suffer. I'm a witness of His sufferings. I know to what extent He was willing to go for you and for me. I'm a witness of His sufferings. And you know something? I'm also a witness, I'm also a sharer of the glory that will be revealed. Remember the story back in Matthew's account? Actually, uh, three of the Gospels give the account of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, being transfigured before them, Moses and Elijah appearing with Him in glory. For a few brief moments of time, Peter, James, and John were transported into the kingdom of God. They saw the kingdom as it will be. It was in a vision, but they saw it. And to the end of his life, Peter remembered and he looked back on that event and he said, I was a witness to the sufferings and I'm a partaker of the glory. And he says, I can tell you something. The glory far, far, far outweighs any sufferings we may be called upon to go through.